0: The Future of Cities is presented by Katera. Today's episode of the Mission Daily is brought to you by Twilio, the leading cloud communications platform. This Wednesday and Thursday, Twilio is hosting Signal, a customer and developer conference that explores the intersection of technology, innovation, and communications. Visit signal.twilio.com and use the promo code MISSION20 at checkout to receive 20% off your tickets. We'll see you there. Welcome to The Mission Daily. This week, we are previewing our new podcast, The Future of Cities. In each episode of The Future of Cities, we dive deep on a subject that affects how our cities are growing and changing. Each episode includes commentary from industry-leading experts, including city planners, technology innovators, government officials, architects, builders, and more. This week on The Mission Daily, we are running the interviews we did for The Future of Cities in their entirety. Today's episode features an interview with Emily Warren. Emily is a Senior Director for Policy and Public Affairs at Lime. She spoke to us about how scooters could forever change cities for the better and why we are about to see a Cambrian explosion of transportation options. She also told us why you might never want to own a car again. If you like what you are hearing, please subscribe to The Future of Cities on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Emily. So exciting to have you on The Future of Cities. We are thrilled to be talking about Lime, scooters, bikes, and all things mobility. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Okay. Easy questions first. What do you think makes a city great?
2: Well, I think personally, what I love about a city is when I can, first of all, explore it on foot because cities hold surprises. And I think part of what people love about the urban experience is being able to explore, not even necessarily, you know, knowing everything they're going to encounter or where they're going to go along the way, or maybe being headed one place and finding other things along that path. And the way to make that happen really comes down to design and it comes down to density. So most of the cities that people love and think of as great cities are ones that, have a high population density. And in fact, many of them are actually ones that were built before cars were invented because they have narrower streets and they're built at a human scale with an intention that things that are awesome ought to be clustered together so that you can encounter them in close succession. And that's how you get the experience of being in a landscape where you can can walk around the corner and find cool retail locations that are spilling out onto the sidewalk. And you can run across pocket parks that you didn't know existed and meet people that you um, didn't know that you were going to encounter, but have a high probability of doing that because there's so many people and so many interesting things that are crammed into that space. So it's density, it's also diversity, economic diversity, ethnic diversity, people from a lot of different origins and engaging in different kinds of activities that contribute to that opportunity for discovery and innovation that exists in cities.
1: I totally agree. And I think it's really interesting that you touch on spontaneity because it's something that the very opposite, like the very unpredictable nature of cities is something that We've talked about in, in previous episodes with people thought was a bug, but it turns out is a feature
0: mm-hmm.
1: that this idea of a city being something that is not predictable, that you don't know exactly when you're going to get from point A to point B. You don't know exactly how safe it's going to be. You don't know exactly all of those things, what the line will be at the restaurant, if there will be parking, if there will be that. A lot of those things are things that people in cities don't necessarily mind as much up to a certain point, but then there is that kind of breaking point where, hey, I need to be able to get around. And obviously, you know, we'll talk about your background in Lyme, but this idea of mobility and what it takes to jump around a city is really core to, you know, what people want out of it who live there.
2: I think that's right. And it's interesting that you key on this question of spontaneity because that's something I've been thinking about a lot as it relates to Lime and specifically the experience of being on an electric scooter compared to how you behave when you're in a car. So before this, I worked for almost six years at Lyft. I was one of the original employees at the company and helped build the ride sharing industry from the ground up. And you know that kind of service is amazing. It really provides a level of mobility access and, and convenience, and to a significant degree, spontaneity that wasn't possible before. Uh, but once you get in the car, it's basically an automated process to go from your origin to your destination. And what I've been noticing about Lime is that when somebody grabs a scooter and they start going from their origin to wherever they think they might be going – they're actually much more likely to take diversions along the way. And we see that that's really common in the data of how people use Lime scooters is that they don't necessarily take the most direct route. They appear to be voluntarily taking diversions, doing longer trips than necessary just because they found a beautiful place or because they decided to hop off and leave the scooter for a few minutes while they jump into a cafe or into a store or to, you know, to check something out. And I love that. I think it actually is helping to accelerate and enable what is awesome about cities, which is this ability to discover spontaneously as you go in a way that's harder to do when you're kind of in a hermetically sealed vehicle that's propelled toward a certain destination.
1: That's really fascinating. So people are getting on scooters with the intention to go from A to B potentially and realizing what like wow this is this is pretty great. I can I can do a bunch of different things now and then eventually getting to that point or never getting to that point and going somewhere else.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean of course people will use them recreationally as well. It's hard for us to know intent just from the data. We just know what rides happens and where they happened, but we do do some surveys of our users and we ask people questions about the purposes for their trips. And we see that there is quite a significant percentage of people who cite that the reason that they're using the scooter, and and this is true for bikes too, by the way. We also obviously have e-bikes and uh, pedal bikes on the Lime platform as well. Although I think there is maybe something a little bit different happening with scooters just because physically they are so lightweight and so easy to hop on and off that there seems to be an exaggeration of these effects that are already happening with bikes. But in all of those cases, you're seeing that people use them for recreational purposes. And then even when they're using them for more utilitarian purposes, they're deciding to take a trip that incorporates unexpected stops, or they're choosing to go on jaunts off into other directions as they go along, which I think is really fascinating. It incorporates a level of agency and discovery that is really appealing to me.
1: Part of the reason I was so excited to talk to you and talk about what Lime is doing is this idea that truly buying something versus renting something is not really the conversation that people are having in their minds like the consumer's intent i think people have really missed the mark on it's not that people ever wanted to say oh i want to ride you know i want to buy a scooter so that i can use it all the time it's the idea that spontaneously i'm going to decide which way i want to you know go from a to b that is fascinating to me like it's so fascinating to me that people Are choosing in the moment that I get to, I can go anywhere, right? I can go on my day on a Saturday or a Sunday, or whether it's going to work or whatever. And now I have many options and I get to choose the best one. Like that is the thing that's so interesting for the future of mobility is that a person in, you know, 40 years from now, or 10 years from now, or two years from now, will have the option to do so many more things than we had 10 years ago. And that is like, it's really liberating. Mm
2: -hmm. Yes, the behavior that people display when they have access to on-demand kinds of mobility services is dramatically different than how they behave when they own a car. And you're right that they're not necessarily thinking about that consciously and saying, oh, okay, because I, I don't own a car, you know, I'm going to incorporate X, Y, and Z mode of transportation into my routine. Instead, it can shift people into a mindset in which they're thinking about each trip individually. Now, This is a very well-established principle of transportation research. Researchers that look at how people get around and how that changes when they own a car versus when they don't own a car would tell you, that when someone owns a car, there's basically this default assumption that's baked into all of the decisions that they make moving forward about how to get around because they have this hunk of metal that they've already paid for sitting in their driveway. And so their expectation is when they leave, they're going to use this thing that they've already paid for and just use that for like every kind of trip that they need to get around unless for some reason that would be a painful option to use. So this is why you know parking pricing matters a lot in shaping whether or not people choose to own cars. If parking is free and someone has a car sitting in their driveway that they've already paid for, they're probably going to use it for just about everything. If they know parking is going to be scarce or it's going to be expensive, then they may try to think about some other alternatives. But when someone don't, doesn't own a car, then every time they leave their house, they ask themselves the question, What should I use instead of just having a default? And that's why there are such enormous possibilities that are opened up for transportation sustainability when you shift toward a shared use model rather than a personal ownership model. Because, yes, people may still choose to use vehicles in the form of ride sharing or car sharing for certain types of trips, but it's no longer going to be the thing they use for 100% of their trips because there are going to be a lot of times when they – are getting around and they say, oh, well, maybe I took a lift here, but actually it's pretty short to get where I want to go. I'm going to walk or, hey, there's a scooter right in front of me. I'm going to grab that on the sidewalk and just, uh, you know, hop into this bike lane and go the mile that I need to go to get where I'm going. And I won't have to be in traffic. Whereas if they had brought their car with them, they would need to take their car for the rest of the day. So It really opens up an opportunity for reducing traffic, reducing the negative impacts on our environment that are caused by personal car ownership and by vehicle congestion and fossil fuel consumption generally in a way that's it's pretty powerful.
1: I think that the thing people have been solving for for so long has been the wrong variable. This is just my opinion. We've tried to get people to places that are more walkable because we think that cities are better when they're walkable which i believe is true but what we didn't what we weren't factoring for is we don't necessarily need cities to be walkable everywhere because it's not possible to walk from one end of Houston to another when you have a meeting right it's like when you used to if you were in college and you had a class on either end of the campus or something like that Like it's not always practical to walk every single place you go, but making it walkable in certain areas and then able to get from one place to another place of the city, that is where you can have huge amounts of change. Because in those micro areas, it's very walkable and it's fun and spontaneous, but you still need to get from, you know, uptown to downtown or from, you know, Manhattan to Brooklyn or or whatever the case may be, there still needs to be mobility solutions for those like midterm kind of things. And that's kind of commonly referred to as like the last mile, right? So like what, I mean, that's sort of the gets to the last mile piece, but that's, I think that's kind of part of it. Explain the difference between last mile and kind of just like getting around the urban core because those are basically different things, right?
2: Yes, so when public transit operators think about their services. They're trying to make public transit as accessible as possible and make it possible for people to use it for as many different kinds of trips as they can. But the fact is that public transit only works financially and operationally for very high-density corridors. So basically, there, there have to be a lot of people trying to go between point A and point B, or generally along that route, in order for it to be feasible to spend all the money on infrastructure to build up a train system and to operate a train system along that right-of-way, or even to operate a bus line. You need a lot of people filling up that bus, otherwise it's not going to pay off the cost of this enormous vehicle and the labor to operate it, et cetera. And so that's why generally you really only see high-quality, high-frequency transit On these really busy routes and if you're not on that busy route then you're going to have to get to that route in order for it to be able to serve a need for you and so that's a challenge and that's why it's very often the case that people who you know the only people who use transit are ones that live and work relatively close to the ends of the line you know or the stops along the way on this really busy corridor And transit agencies would really like to expand the population of people who can use their services. And we should want that as cities too, Uh, as citizens, as governments. It's important for more people to use public transit for commuting because that's the most efficient way to move large numbers of people in a high-density context without contributing to congestion. So you need to have ways to feed people in to that system. You need to find ways so that you can expand the, the scope of folks that are able to access public transit stations. And Lyme can serve as a first and last mile solution that does connect people to their stations. Whereas in the past, if you lived a mile and a half away from a train station, You might not feel like that was really a good option for you in the morning, especially because very often there's not parking available. If you think about the Bay Area where you live in Oakland and where I used to live, parking at BART stations is at an enormous premium. It's incredibly difficult to get. You have to basically get there at 6.30 or 7 in the morning. And if you try to put yourself on the list for a reserved space, you could be on it for years. I think I'm still on the Oakland list and I should probably stay on it because if I move back there in five years, I still won't have. Come to the top of it yet? Uh, yeah, totally you know, in Rockridge, right? So, so for that reason, you know we need to have services that don't require people to park a vehicle at the train station, but that can get people to the train station and allow them to access that transit line. So, a service like Lime that extends people's reach farther than they would be willing to walk can expand the scope of ridership for public transit. And get a lot more people into that system on a regular basis. And that is slightly distinct from the kind of function that Lyme serves in just people getting around a downtown area or, you know, a trip that doesn't connect to transit. But it's it's all part of this ecosystem that makes it less necessary for people to use vehicles to get around.
1: There's recently a study that came out that essentially said that. Ride sharing creates more traffic, and I forget. I think it was like 160 percent more traffic, and I think it was New York City or wherever it was. And then we've seen like legislation passed since then, and this is all in the past like week, basically. But I'd love for you to to talk about. You know, you obviously had a long career at Lyft, and you served as part of the World Economic Forum on autonomous and urban mobility. I'd love for you to kind of weigh in on this with this idea that what creates something right now in a certain moment in time is not necessarily what it will be in 10 years. And therefore, judging something, judging traffic or judging the last mile problem or whatever these things are, I guess just speak to the idea of like, what do you feel like 10 years from now? all of those services and all of these kind of the plethora of different options, those solutions, do you think they'll be solved? Do you think it's going to be exacerbated? Like what are your thoughts there?
2: I think policy matters, but I have a lot of concerns about the approach that we're seeing in response to the study that you mentioned and the actions that were taken in New York City, because what they're doing is, not targeted toward the real causes of congestion and when you look at the full scope of things that contribute to traffic really the vast majority of vehicles on the road are personally owned cars i actually looked at the numbers the other day for new york state dmv records you know the number of vehicles that are registered in in new york city and i think it's close to two million so that really puts in perspective the you know, tens of thousands. I think it's, you know, maybe a hundred thousand or a little bit fewer cars that are on ride-sharing platforms. We have personal cars that are taking up enormous amounts of space, that are filling the streets with traffic, and that are reducing the amount of available space for housing construction and other productive economic uses because of the need for parking. And it's really incomplete to focus on a solution that only looks at shared vehicles. In fact, shared vehicles are a very important part of reducing the need for car ownership altogether. And so I'm very worried that if we take steps that dramatically reduce the availability of shared mobility services, that we're going to undercut our ability to move people away from car ownership. Car ownership can't be reduced through one mode of transportation alone. You can't just offer ride sharing and think that that is going to cause someone to give up owning a car. It's part of a portfolio. Bikes, scooters, walking, transit, ride sharing, car sharing, all these things together create enough of a robust package that can address all the different kinds of use cases that pop up in someone's life and some redundancy to offer a sense of security for people that something is going to be there for them in any circumstance that is how you compete with car ownership but if we you know chip away at the effectiveness of different parts of that package and reduce their reliability and reduce their availability in different areas especially in underserved areas which is what i think may happen as a result of the new york policy that is very counterproductive to the goal. So I would rather see policies like comprehensive congestion pricing that encompass personal vehicles, which are the major contributor to congestion, and also ride-sharing vehicles because, yes, they also can cause congestion if there are too many of them, um, but they do that in a, in a logical way that cuts across all types of vehicles. And you know they're really targeted to those areas where that's a problem, which didn't happen with the cap that was put in place. That was not a targeted approach, and I think it could have detrimental effects outside of the urban core. So that's the kind of approach that I would prefer to see. And I think when you talk about caps, generally, it's problematic from the perspective of a data-based approach to regulation. I think when cities are evaluating, you know, what is the level of shared mobility service of X, Y, or Z kind that's needed in this area? That number needs to be based on data. And in fact, it's going to constantly change. It should be responsive and dynamically indexed to the demand that exists and the actual outcomes that are delivered by these services, which is why, for example, with Lime Service, we're excited to see some cities starting to adopt an alternative to CAPS that is based on performance Utilization-based dynamic caps that instead of setting a fixed number of scooters or bikes that make sense in a city, there's a recognition of the fact that that level of need is going to change very rapidly and fluctuate over time, and that the city should focus instead on outcomes of okay, they want you know a certain number of trips to happen per day to make sure there's not excess supply on each vehicle say okay you need to have three or four trips per happen per day per scooter that is a more data-based approach than an arbitrary cap approach and historically if you look at the approach to taxi regulation in a lot of cities there have been medallion systems which are essentially caps they are fixed allocations of the number of licenses that are available for taxis to operate and frankly that was such a broken system. It created such a shortage of shared mobility supply that it created the, the need for Lyft and Uber to exist in the first place. In San Francisco, you know, where I lived, prior to the creation of Uber and Lyft, it was impossible to get a taxi because the number of authorized licenses in San Francisco was far below the level of demand. And so you just never saw them outside of the densest parts of the downtown area. And I'm afraid that if we start taking a cap-based approach to ride sharing services, that we're going to end up right back where we started, which is would really be a sad thing to see after having seen such an improvement in uh, mobility access in the years since those services were created. So to get back to your original question, what's it going to look like 10 years from now? I think if cities have the political courage to look at the problem comprehensively and to enact policies that are inclusive of personal cars which are by far in a way the most dramatic contributor to almost every negative externality in our transportation system certainly traffic and emissions foremost among them then we are likely to see a rational framework that can be effective in shaping people's choices so that they're inclined to choose something other than a car when they're in a dense urban zone where good options are available other than a a vehicle and they're likely to choose other options, you know, when that's necessary. And I hope that cities will choose that path.
1: I mean, it's so counterproductive to me to think about these things that the market is requiring them. Like we realized as a society like, "Oh, you know, it's really great getting where I need to go." And then it's like, "Well, it might slow everything down right now." It's like, "Well, maybe there's more cars on the road now that there's, you know, shared services." And it's like but the cars that are being added to the road even if right this second a lot of those people are doing one person drives in the future they are well number one they're equipped right now for carrying a full car which you know Ian Faison's car driving down the street by myself is equipped for nobody else because nobody can hop in it right so automatically that's a that's a zero like that car is a net zero ability or you're relying on that person choosing to carpool, which in a given moment makes no sense unless you have a fixed route and all that sort of stuff, which autonomous will take care of anyways. The second piece of that is it's just not enough time. The time horizon is so short on this. And I think that all of these things, like we just have to have more data to look at this in a longer time horizon. I think it's something like only 2% of car rides are rideshares right now? Like if that number was in 20%. In New York City? Or I, I think so, or something like that. Maybe. Yeah,
2: it would be dramatically lower than that anywhere else. I mean, oh, okay, that maybe. may be true in the middle of New York City, but in most places, it's you know a tiny fraction of a percent.
1: Okay, so I mean, even better, right? So it's a tiny fraction of percent of people, but if it was 10%, Think of how many people are going to the same sort of places that you could add or pick up or drop off people. And as someone who uses the carpool options on ride sharing all the time, it's a little bit frustrating from the old model where you go, well, I used to be able to get there and this added seven minutes on my trip, but it gets better every single month because there's more people on those ride rides. Exactly. And it
2: takes critical mass before you're gonna have a high probability of matching. That's just you know the fundamental mass of it, that the more people that start choosing to take shared rides, the higher the likelihood will be that you'll be able to, to make matches. And the larger the number of total people participating in the system, the greater the probability that you'll have two rides that are good matches for each other happening at the moment that they're both requested so that they can be matched. So it's something that gets better and better and better as the systems grow. And I think when you, you you look at the other longer-term part of that picture is car ownership effects. People don't make a decision about whether to own a car or not to own a car overnight. They tend to do it when their old car breaks down or when they move um, on a you know, several-year cycle and so it does take some time for a lot of these effects to actually start to be seen now i do think that they will start to happen faster when autonomous vehicles start to come onto ride sharing platforms because then the costs of taking ride sharing compared to owning a car are start going to start to be a much more obvious economic case for people to use shared rides instead of their personal vehicles so maybe people will make those decisions more quickly And they'll be able to rationalize ride sharing instead of cars in a lot broader variety of cases with like longer trips. But even now, you know, we can start to see some of those decisions starting to happen and we do need to give it time to show its potential.
1: I mean, I would go a step further from that and say that those decisions going from someone who is a car owner to not a car owner is a very quite literal binary scenario, I think the more accurate comparison or the more accurate, like the leading metric would actually be young people who are not a car owner that choose never to own a car. And those are the type, like we have employees at the mission that are like that, that are like, uh, they're, they're sitting there listening to the future of cities and they're like, I can't wait for this stuff because I never want to own a car like that. Those conversations are happening all over America. And I think people just forget about that, that there's people that as young people get older and they have requirements that they're not going to want to do that. And then at some point down the road, maybe when they have, you know, kids or something that they require, you know, I need, I need three seats in the back, you know, or whatever that then they go and need one car for the family, which they use for certain types of trips, but they don't use that for work every day because they use other means. I mean, like those things are generational. They're on 10 year time horizons. Like that is culturally baked in. And I think that those are the type of things that we just can't look at at a, in 2018. We can't just draw a line in the sand and be like, hey, we totally know what 10 years from now is going to look like. I think we just need to have the flexibility to say, Hey, if buying behavior changes over the next decade, what does it look like as young people want to move into cities, want to move as mega cities become a reality, as more people move into big cities and less people require cars? What does that look like? And I think that those are the bets that, you know, Lyft and Uber and Lyme and ride sharing and autonomous vehicles and all of that, those are the bets that I think companies are making. I mean, in, in my opinion.
2: Exactly. And I think, it's so important to try to create options for people, but then use policy to shape incentives. I'm a big fan of using things that have a rational economic component, like pricing, yes. to you know adjust people's calculus so that basically you're fully baking in the public costs and all the externalities of the services that people choose into their incentive structure and their decision making. Um, that's the beauty of something like con- congestion pricing when applied uniformly across all types of vehicles is that you're not restricting the availability of cars or ride sharing services or anything else. You're just applying a fee if people you know, choose something that has a higher greenhouse gas footprint or contributes more to congestion or takes up more public space. That cost is baked into this price and it allows people to make a decision of whether or not it's worth it to them because they have a mobility need that requires them to make that choice. Then that's still available to them. They're not stuck, but it also shapes their behavior to try to reduce the frequency of that behavior when they have other good options. And the key to that is options, right? If we want people to actually be able to feel they have a choice not to have to take a car, uh, they need to have a plethora of other great solutions to that particular mobility challenge, and in an environment where, you know, we don't see particularly forthcoming funding for a lot of public transit infrastructure to to step up its capacity, I think we want to see a lot of other options also coming to the table. But you know, I'm a huge believer in public transit. We absolutely need to, as a society, choose to reinvest and increase our investment in public transit infrastructure in cities. But we also have to build out that full portfolio of options for, for folks and make sure that that availability is there, even if we're structuring policy incentives that are designed to encourage people to choose the more sustainable choices when they can. You no,
1: know, I, I think the future might look like that we, we have 10 times more options. That if we had 10 times more options to get different places... We could actually solve for the problems that we need rather than 10 years ago where you had two you had you know Mm -hmm. i can i can walk i mean generally you couldn't even call a taxi but it's like i can walk to wherever it is i can get arrived from someone else to public transit or i'm just going to drive myself and like i think that in the future there's going to be so many options that it's going to be really exciting to have the freedom to do any of those things
2: what we're seeing right now, to me, is almost reminiscent of what they call, in I believe it's sort of archaeological history, the Cambrian explosion. It, or, you know, really, even the, the history of the species that developed on this planet. Um, there was this period in the Cambrian era where an enormous number of new species came into being. There had been a relatively static, slow-growing number of species around for millions of years. And then all of a sudden, you saw a huge increase in the variety of different species that started to develop. The reason for that in that case was oxygen. And what we're experiencing right now is something like that, but for mobility and data and Mobile connectivity are the oxygen that are contributing to this sudden expansion in the variety of mobility options that are available. I love it. I think the scooter is the perfect example because it's so counterintuitive. Like Nobody was saying around two years ago saying, you know what's going to be really big soon? Scooters. Like it, was, yeah. it came as a surprise. It came as a surprise even to, to us to see the degree of response to that new shape of a device it's something that in many respects offers a similar value proposition to a bicycle but the reality has been that people are reacting to it in a very different way that has proven to generate much higher utilization per vehicle than we see with traditional bikes why is that the case i think it's you know it's a very interesting question that may relate to the design Of the device, how people perceive it, the ease of getting on and off, how well it works with people wearing business clothes or for women, a lot of different factors. But the moral of the story is that there are going to be a lot of these surprises. There are so many different permutations of mobility devices and vehicles that we can create that will serve different kinds of needs that haven't even really been imagined yet or tried out yet. And now that we have the oxygen there to start feeding that innovation and experimentation i think there's going to be a further explosion in options that is is simply going to strengthen the portfolio that competes with car ownership to a degree we haven't seen before
1: yeah i love all of that and i think that analogy is is really apt and i think that the the rise of the scooter is something that when you look back and you diagram all the things that you just said of why this is making sense right here, right now, I think it's the combination of all of those things. But I think there's just some physics involved. It's just I don't have to work up a sweat when I do it. Mm-hmm. The handlebars of a scooter are much smaller than that of a bike. It's easier to maneuver. You don't feel as dangerous as you know a bike sometimes does in and amongst cars in the way that it is. And I think that ultimately, us being on Razor scooters—that was were a, a kid, big...
2: right? It was like training.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's like a decade later. It's like every kid what they wanted was a Razor scooter that had a motor, right? And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, it turns out you can do that. And you see kids all over using these things. And I think that—and I say kids as young people, as really people of all ages. But you know, you have some statistics on your riders about you know the household earnings and all of that. Could you share that?
2: Yeah, that was actually a fascinating stat. So I think sometimes there's a perception that services like Lime are kind of a a tech fad or something that's being used by an elite population of early adopter tech bros, for lack of a better word. And what was really interesting is that in some user research that we did recently, surveying people who had taken rides on the Lime platform, we found that over 51 percent of our riders reported that they had a total household income of $75,000 or less. So these are middle income and low income families, you know, with a, on a majority of our riders on the platform who are choosing to use this service, which does not fit with the high income earning tech bro stereotype. I'm sure we have a few of those too, and that's great. We're grateful for their business but part of Lime's mission and really our passion is to try to create transportation equity and to offer solutions that are affordable that can actually become available on a regular reliable basis in communities that haven't had access to transportation in the past. In fact that's why we created and recently expanded our Lime access program. Just this week we announced that we were going to be rolling it out across all of our scooter and electric bike products so that now All of those offerings are 50% off for people that come from disadvantaged populations, defined as already being eligible for some kind of a public assistance program. They just go through a simple process of uh, verifying that with our customer support team. And then they're able to get this greatly reduced 50% off access to our electric products, as well as 95% off our traditional pedal bikes on the Lime platform and Use that hopefully on a routine basis that really improves their mobility access. And in addition to that, we actually also have partnered with a company called Pay Near Me that allows people who are unbanked to pay with cash at a bunch of retail locations, thousands of them around the country, and use that to load credit onto their Lime accounts. And then they can even use a regular feature phone if they don't have a smartphone to text to unlock the bike. So we're trying to break down all those different barriers that might prevent underserved populations from using Lyme. And I'm hopeful that that will continue to be reflected in the numbers that we see on our platform and the diversity, both economic and racial, that we will see in the breakdown of our riders.
1: I love that. And I absolutely hate the reductive knee-jerk analysis of like, oh, it must be, you know, this population that's using it or that population rather than like, hey, let's actually just look at what it is and stop writing things that are not accurate. I mean, that's mm-hmm. just one of those things where you're like, hey, let's actually just look, like, let's look at what's happening. Like, if you all are going to be transparent, that that's part of the thing that I think with some companies that have been more transparent with their information than others, mm-hmm. that you see that, hey, we can actually work towards solutions when we're being transparent, sharing information. Obviously, you know you can't share all of your proprietary information, but the idea that we know what the market needs. We're listening to the people that are trying to use the platform and making sure that we can have people that use this. And that's a huge part of this. To just say that it's one population that is using these is just so silly. It's like, why? And even if it was, it's like that type of people need transportation too. I The thing that really, I guess, of all of the transportation aspects that I find so empowering and exciting is the fact that when we decrease these times, when we decrease the amount of times that we spend waiting, that we spend sitting in traffic, we increase time with our families. We increase doing things that we love. And you can't put a price on that thing. I mean, that is one of the things that's so exciting about the future of cities is that we can do more of the things that we actually love to do with the people that we want to do that stuff with.
2: That's right. I mean, it improves people's productivity when they don't have to sit in traffic for all of this time. And when you increase their ability to make the choice to go do something that they want to do, you give them that additional mobility access. I mean, that's, directly accruing to their quality of life. So, I think that's an important factor that that cities need to incorporate when they're thinking about what these shared mobility services contribute to their citizens and how they align with city policy priorities. That improved mobility access is just a huge factor. And obviously in in Lime's case, I think we found that cities are very receptive to the fact that our bikes and scooters do not travel in regular vehicle lanes so they don't cause traffic. They're really aligned with the goals of expanding bike lanes and Vision Zero removing the safety issues that are associated with such high usage of cars today by encouraging more people to adopt active transportation options and of course low carbon options that are completely electric or human powered. So all of those factors need to be taken into consideration by cities when they're thinking about how to prioritize, of course, you know, the services that they allow to operate on their streets but also how much space is allocated to those different options you know are they are they allocating a really disproportionate amount of space to cars and parking even though options like bikes and scooters align better with their stated policy goals as a city cities really need to evaluate that and even go back to the drawing board and think about how can they make design changes and adjust the prioritization of the use of public space to better support the success of options that will help them achieve their policy objectives.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I'll, I'll kind of leave that that final thought. That, that was great. And kind of want to switch gears here with our lightning round, which I have not told you about. Uh, we do a Check lightning it. round, fast and easy questions. Are you ready?
2: Sure. Go for
1: it. What app are you using on your phone that is the most fun?
2: An app that I've appreciated recently has been Rover because I have two small, sweet rescue dogs who I love very much, and I also travel a lot. And so I am very eager to try to find great people in my neighborhood who love dogs, who can help me out when I go out of town. And Rover is an amazing service that does that on a peer-to-peer basis. I've found some fantastic dog sitters and dog walkers who love my dog's uh, maybe not quite as much as I do, but, but pretty darn much in just a few blocks away from me using the Rover app. This is not a sponsored advertisement. I really, yeah. I just love Rover.
1: <laughs> That's great. That was awesome. And they've been really good dogs throughout this podcast. So good job for, for them as well. What, uh, what's your favorite time-saving tool?
2: I think that it's critical to block off time on your calendar for proactive work and then require that when people put meetings on your agenda, that they have a stated objective and that they aren't scheduled for longer than they than they need to be. I try to be relentless about consolidating meetings that are unnecessary and making sure that I have enough space in my schedule for those proactive projects, because that's really where creativity lives. And if you don't provide time for it, you just end up being in a reactive posture and not actually doing those extremely impactful things that can save you so much time on things that you'll need to react to in the future.
1: Couldn't agree more. Do you have a favorite team, sports or otherwise?
2: My husband is a huge basketball fan, and we are fans of the L.A. Lakers. Before I met him, I hadn't really spent a lot of time on basketball, but since we've been together, I've come to love it, and I'm a totally died in the wool Laker fan, and really hoping that now that we have LeBron, that we're going to rebuild and start to dominate as we rightfully should.
1: As a Warriors fan, I wholeheartedly disagree, but I appreciate the enthusiasm. you have a favorite podcast?
2: I love 99% Invisible. Yeah, it's great. From Oakland.
1: Favorite recent book you've read?
2: A book called Pachinko right now, which is really great. It is an interesting story about Korea and Japan back in the, the pre-World War II era and, and through the 20th century, which is, is pretty fascinating.
1: Do you have a favorite show you're watching?
2: On Netflix? Oh my gosh, it's my guilty pleasure. I don't have regular TV. My husband and I are cord cutters, so we stopped our cable subscription a couple of years ago. But there's such a wealth of other things right now. I'm, I'm excited for the new season of Insecure to Heart start on HBO, which is a great show, but that's not for a couple of weeks. Right now, I've been, frankly, just splurging on lame like food shows, like food competition shows on Netflix, because that's my, my guilty pleasure. I just want to see somebody have to bake cupcakes really fast and then get judged for it.
1: Favorite one-day getaway in Boston?
2: I haven't lived in Boston very long, so I'm in exploration mode, and every place that I'm going is like for the first time. So I'm trying to plot one out right now, hoping to get up to Maine and maybe check out Portland or some of the other places on the Maine coast,
1: Last two questions. What is your favorite city?
2: I recently moved to the lovely city of Somerville, Massachusetts, which really is fantastic from an urbanist perspective. It is a shockingly good little microcosm of what a city should be. It's right next door to Boston, right next door to Cambridge, and actually quite a small city, but it has such high population density its housing was really built for working class people living next door to one another in multifamily homes. And so it has a degree of density that's really unusual in a suburb, even an inner ring suburb like Somerville. And that is conducive to an amazing level of walkability, transit access, and a fantastic landscape for biking and walking and scootering and multimodality. So when I moved to Somerville, I was finally able to get rid of my car, which I had to own living in, in the hills in Oakland without any transit access. But here I'm totally car free and feel like I'm liberated and just loving all of that this city has to offer, which yeah, has like amazing immigrant communities and really fascinating like arts community, cool stuff happening, provides all those surprises and spontaneity that makes cities great.
1: Final question. What is the thing that you were most excited about for the future of cities.
2: That's easy. I'm excited for car ownership to become a thing of the past. It's been the most negative influence in affecting urban life in the last 60 years. And we have an opportunity now to undo that and to reclaim our cities. And I hope that we will.
1: I love it. This is great. Thanks so much for for hanging out.
2: My pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Future of Cities. And thank you to our friends at Katerra. The multi-trillion dollar global construction industry is ready for change. Katerra's end-to-end team is joining together from different industries to innovate the future of building. Learn how you can join their growing team at katerra.com or click the link in our show notes. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.